Welcome to a new episode of Caroline Talks, the podcast slash YouTube channel where I, your host, Caroline Hanks, um, a film critic, speak to industry creatives about their craft, the industry, and their latest projects. And today I am joined by director Jesse V. Johnson to talk about his latest action film, Hell Hath No Fury. It's like a Nazi revenge film. And it was very exciting and I love how it's constructed and I can't wait to talk to Jesse about this film. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask Jesse to say a bit about himself and just give a brief intro to Hell Hath No Fury. <laughs> so Jesse? Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. My name is Jesse B. Johnson. I'm the director of Hell Hath No Fury, which is a World War II film uh, set in uh, 1944 August, which is the waning part of uh, German occupation of France. Uh, we find a ragtag group of GIs with a French woman who has been a part of the retribution uh, sort of process. She's had her head shaved and a swastika drawn on her forehead and stripped off, which is what they did to the supposed collaborators uh, the moment the Germans left and the Allies advanced in. There were a lot of personal vendettas and axes to grind were taken care of. And we find her in this cemetery where she has promised that there's some hidden gold that they will be able to have if they help to get away from the uh, sort of this, you know, this pseudo rebel force. What we then learn is that there's a waiting group of uh, French resistance that may or may not know her and may or may not have been involved with her. And then further that, we find out there's a renegade group of 12th SS who have broken away from the German withdrawal and are also making their way towards the cemetery. So we're, we're left with a, a, a group of very diverse and very dangerous characters all coming to this uh, cemetery for whatever reason, we're not sure, but we're pretty certain it's the gold. Uh, but what we learn is the most dangerous, uh, as well as the most righteous of all of the people in this ragtag dangerous group is young Marie, the, uh, the lead title character. Yes, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, so our lead Marie, um, Marie Dujardin, is played by Nina Bergman. And I, what I love about this character, and I love how the film is very much about her, but you don't really notice it until the film progresses. Like, you know, you know, it's, it's about, as you said, it's about just close to the end of the Second World War when like the troops, the um, Allied troops started to advance into Europe. And the thing is, is it's a very contained story because a lot of it takes place in one location, which is the cemetery where these um, US um, GIs, they've come and they have Marie and they're like, they want her to help them find this goal because that's the condition. They're like, we're gonna help you if you help us, right? It's a pretty cool, cool situation because at this point in time during um, the Second World War, like no one was doing anything purely out of altruism. There had to be a payoff. And for them, it was this set of gold. They don't know how much gold it was. They just know it was gold. I'm like, this could be like one gold bar, dude, but you're going through all of this for, for, for this gold. And the thing with Marie is she, she has nothing. She has no weapons. She has only her wits literally that's and her and her body and but the thing is she can't use her body as in she can't fight because these she's surrounded by men with weapons she's surrounded by men who are angry who are frustrated and they just want to leave all right and she has to use her brain and to, to defeat these men and i love how the film is about how smart this woman is and also about the the experiences that she had before because that like, you kind of interweave like the present with the past and situations that she was in so can you just tell me a bit about fight about working with Nina because I know you worked with Nina before because you did a small project for 
uh, Wonder Woman before the first film, and I know that's how you met her. So can you just tell me about getting her to work with you on this project? Yeah, it's. It, I think it's a wonderful story. I think it's worth repeating. And but I think Nina is it, her story and how she is in this movie should be shared. Uh, we did an enormous casting for this. It's a very very good script, a very good role for a woman, you know, female actors, and 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 they are rare. You know, we know about the. It's you know, it's getting better. It's getting better in the last decade or so. We're seeing a lot of. But but I felt it had to be a story about a woman in World War II. My grandmother was in the ATS. 1941 to 43, her stories were what fueled me as a storyteller growing up. I lived with my grandmother as a product of uh, the swinging 70s. And uh, my, my parents were both happily married, but not to each other kind of thing. Uh, now, uh, Marie represents all of those female heroes that I grew up, you know, I was surrounded by matriarchs growing up, you know, mother, powerful, powerful women that, that ruled the roost, you know, the men didn't have much power in my house. I was just was a single mother and, and uh, she was, she was powerful. Her mother, my grandmother was, is also, was also tremendously powerful and, and convincing and manipulative in her own way, matriarch, but these were wonderful people. And, and, and I've always been drawn to female characters like that. And I think as a man, I have a, I, I can draw those characters. Now, of course, I have a, 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 a female writer, Catherine McEwen, who's written uh, with me for the last four roles. She takes care of the idiosyncrasies. That's her passion. And, and she gets in with my female characters and really makes them as uh, dimensional as possible. So, uh, but my experience as, a, as a, an observer and as being growing up around women like that, I felt qualified me to, to make a story about this wonderful woman who is, who is powerful. Now, finding the part, which is what you're really asking about, is uh, the interesting story. So we had a lot of people submit for this. The moment they learned that I was actually going to cut their hair, and by the way, this is not a nice haircut. This is sheared with bald skin showing in places and tufts showing in other places. Yeah. They realized this was going to be a wig that I was going to let them wear, that I actually wanted the hair cut because of the nature of you know the film. Uh, that list of submissions reduced very, very quickly. Uh, and then beyond that, we, it was the middle of COVID. We couldn't have people come in from France or England or, or, or overseas. We ended up hiring a Russia, Russian actress who'd won uh, a couple of Russian Oscars. She's very, very good. It was a very high quality production and it was going to go ahead. But we're 48 hours away from filming and we can't get her out of Russia. They will not open the gate. America, uh, uh, Trump will not open this end to immigrants at that point you know, because of the COVID crisis. Uh, it was very, very upsetting. Now, Nina had submitted for the role. She'd done an audition. It was fantastic. I loved working with her, but I realized the backers needed someone with more of a name. Nina and I met first through my management uh, a decade plus ago. Uh, and on top of that, when the 2008 uh, crisis hit and I had films fall apart, Nina approached me to write a script for her. And that money that she paid me for that script at that time it wasn't much, but it kept food on my table. And I, I, I said I would never forget that, not only because of how it helped me out, but because I, I love Nina. I think she's there's something, there's a spark there. There's a spark of Ingrid Bergman or, or Marlene Dietrich, some old school actress that, and it always stayed with me. And so when I was prepping to do this Wonder Woman uh, proof of concept, and you have to remember, this was before the Wonder Woman movie, just about a year before it, no one, no one knew about, had seen anything with Wonder Woman short of the old TV show, which was very gaudy and sort of, you know, a bit camp. And, and I, I had an idea that it would be a great subject, a great IP to modernize. And we did it. And it was a internet smash. We had a million hits within 24 hours. Uh, DC and Marvel, both, uh, I mean, not Marvel, DC and Warners 
called me in. I went in three times. They said, look, you're not going to direct the movie. It's going to be a female director, but we love what you've done. Do you mind if we run with it and use it and show it to our production staff and our creatives? And I said, absolutely. It's the biggest compliment you can give me. Uh, they ended up using some of the shots, you know, absolutely verbatim, the smashing gun that where Nina smashes the gun over the, the Nazi was used in their World War II sequence, almost identical to the way wow. we uh, When Nina went and read for the part, she got into the, like, the last four she said they had blown up pictures, you know, steel frames from our Wonder Woman short and had them on the wall in the casting room. And she said to the casting director, that's me. That's me in the picture. And they're like, no, no, she has black hair. And you have blonde. And, and, and he's like, yeah, I dyed it. What do you, what do you? And, uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. All right. Yeah. Call the other one. We realize you're, 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 you're ambitious. But uh, so we had we have this wonderful past uh, and and. I was faced with a situation. I had a cast read through where I had all of the guys cast, Daniel, uh, Timothy, Dominic, Louis, uh, Charles Faddy, Joseph Cannon, all great actors I've worked with before whom I love, who love me. We love working together. It was a no brainer. When I read the script, these parts popped out. It was almost, uh, it was almost magical because the French guy who wrote the script had no idea who I'd worked with before. He didn't know I was going to pick it up. We translated it with Google Translate from French. But the descriptions of these characters are almost, they would describe my friends who are the actors that I ended up bringing in. It was, it was very, very easy. Daniel was a little trickier, the, the Von Bruckner character, but, but that worked too. And we had a cast read-through, and I begged Nina to be there. I didn't have an actress to play uh, the Marie role for the read-through uh, around the table. You know? So she drove all the way out to the location, which was a, was a hell of a drive. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're filming this. No cell phone, no internet. Uh, and she, she came out, and she read the script, it's a very good script. Uh, the boys, we had three of them had, were crying by the end of it. It's a very, very emotional thing, this, this story. Uh, I hope I've done it justice with the movie, but it's, it, it has lots of twists and turns. It really get the heartstrings, you know, get the, get the, 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 the tear buds working. And, uh, you know, the, the read-through is over. Each of those actors independently took me aside and said, you have to hire Nina. You have to. What, it doesn't matter who you're going to get. This girl is the part. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Dominic Vandenberg, who has worked with me since the very beginning, we started out, I was a PA. He was a stuntman on Mortal Kombat, you know, the original one, 94 or whatever that was. We, yeah. He was the best man at my wedding. He's an ex-French uh, foreign legionnaire, a member of their commando unit, airborne unit. Uh, he was a mercenary after that. He was a bare-knuckle fighter in Burma and Thailand. He's a very dangerous human being who has a big heart don't get me wrong it, it's he's 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 a modern you know uh, renaissance man as well but but he's a, he's a, he's someone that i've often based my fantasy characters on his turn of phrase the way that he approaches a dangerous situation or or, or, a, or a you know conundrum I, I borrowed that and it's found its way into my movies for me he's the eighth the, the typical the the absolute epitome of what a tough guy is a real action hero i'm a filmmaker i've done I, I'm, I'm not i don't understand i'm not a fighter or a violent person i love peace but when i talk to people like dominic i realize this is how i base my this is the kind of person my characters are they will have a fight they will they will throw a punch they'll be the quiet silent type i'm not like that i'll talk my way out of any kind of dangerous situation uh dominic came up to me and he's got hands like ham hocks. They're sort of this size. You know, you, put, you hide your hands if you're a man under the table because you don't want them on the table because they're so intimidating, these great big lumpy hands. And he poked me in the chest and he said, uh, you're, 
I'm going to leave out the swearing part. But he said, you're an idiot if you don't hire this girl. And he turned his back and walked away. And it's almost like an encounter with Charles Bronson. You don't, you don't let something like that just go. And, and it, was quite, it was quite moving. And so I went to the, the bankers who are, who are Russian. And I said, look, I know she doesn't have a name. I understand that. But we need to hire her. And, and it fell on deaf ears. They wanted to continue to go with, you know, we had a window of opportunity. We lost Daniel. He was going off to Matrix Part 4. And we'll lose Tim Murphy. He goes off to uh, Snowpiercer. We have to shoot now. We don't, we don't have the possibility to wait. She's not out of Russia. We got two days before we start filming. This whole film could literally just go away, which is what movies often do. I've had many that just disappear. Uh, and Nina said, let me have a talk to him. And Nina said, you know that my grandfather played Ivan the Terrible in the Sergei Eisenstein movie. And the Russians said, what? Why didn't you say that before? You got to use that lineage. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my God, if she had only said that from before, it would save me two heartache and we could have gone with it. But anyway, they, they love the fact that her grandfather was a megastar, you know, in, in Russian cinema. He's a god. Uh, she even looks very like him. They have a similar profile with the nose and the chin. I mean, they're both beautiful bone structure, which is why she's so fascinating to shoot. But she embedded herself in this character. As I say, we were isolated at a remote location without telephone or cell service. We bubbled as a crew and a cast. There was no visitors. No one was allowed to leave, and they had a specific hospital reason or a doctor. And no, you know, so we were there. The crew slept at uh, you know, the location. There's lots of kind of cabins. They slept down there. There's a big ranch house at the top end of the location, which is where the car slept with a lot of bedrooms in it. It was the most beautiful, artistic, creative experience ever. There was no, no fooling around or knickknack or anything like that. Everyone was absolutely, absolutely focused on their parts. And it was as if we were able to step back to the 40s and, and people were listening to 1940s music. People were dressing, you know, talking to, their, you know, to the other actors uh, by their character names. We shot the film almost in chronological order. Uh, so scratches and bumps and any nuances in character would be reflected through the rest of the film. You know, uh, uh, I just saw that guy with the gun. I'm feeling a little bit suspicious of him. So in the next scene, he's suspicious of him. On a normal movie, if you shot that out of order, you'd have shot the following scene first, potentially, where he wasn't suspicious. And then you suddenly realize, oh, shit, I could have, I could have added that nuance to my performance. In chronological order is one of the greatest gifts a cast and a, a director can have. And it was a joy. It was an absolute joy. And Nina threw herself into this. And when you do a period piece, Carolyn, you've got to be careful because you can't rely on cliches. You have to examine everything for example you know i remember stories of my grandmother saying they didn't they couldn't afford silk stockings yes it was a commodity they had to make a parachutes out of it so they would take a marker pen and draw that line up the back of their leg to make it look like and and they would you know you didn't have candy there was no such thing as candy there was a sugar shortage and especially in southern france there was no candy there was no so you would have sugared plums there was no white bread per se. There was no flour to make the white bread. So uh, there was no jelly. You wouldn't have strawberry jelly, which is what France is known for now, of course, strawberry, wonderful strawberry jelly and thick crusted bread. You, you would, if you showed that in a movie set in anywhere between 1941 and 44, you would be creating an anachronism in your movie. So we had to examine everything to the guns that are used by the Germans. I had a lot of reenactors and I have a military guy that helps with that. And, you know, that can be a bit oppressive. Oh no, he wouldn't hold the gun that way. It has to be held this way because that's, they were trained to hold the gun like that in 1980, you know, and prior to that, they told it in their right hand, things, everything like that. It was a wonderful adventure and a wonderful experience 
A, having to respect all of the period details, but B, having the cast and crew, to be honest, there and in the moment and in the creative. And I hope that comes across when people watch the movie. No, it does. I, I, I kind of picked up that when you, because you're saying that you filmed in chronological order makes so much sense to me having seen the film because there is, you can tell with some films when a film is not filmed chronologically and when it's filmed out of order. Like you can tell because sometimes the reactions don't exactly flow the way they should and in this film you can kind of feel it and like especially with um with nina with her with her playing marie her, her the progression of her emotions flows naturally you know you can tell when she starts to like because at first she's she's held hostage and she's being forced to do this essentially against her will yes it's a deal and a bargain but she's still a woman without um without physical protection for herself so as i said she has to use her mind so you can tell when she when like the pieces of the puzzle that she's forming starts to fall in place and it happens naturally it happens progressively especially there's um this sequence involving a tunnel <laughs> um an underground tunnel. i love that sequence because it's one of these characters he's basically confronting um this situation that he doesn't want to face like he's like can i trust marie the marie that i know now or the person that i'm seeing in front of me is not the person that i know now and he's confronting and i think and i think it that's it's talking about marie but i think it kind of talks about how people in traumatic situations like they have to confront how people change over time how someone being in a war and how being going in a traumatic experience can change someone and then when you're talking about the perspective of a man and how he views a woman all these men are seeing marie for different things like the, the gis are seeing her for what she can get them and then this man who's her ex he's seeing he's he's thinking romantically he's thinking oh she's the marie that i loved before you know she's this uh, soft innocent woman like he's not thinking about how the war could have changed her and you know and it's all about these perceptions that these people have of this woman and she while well, she herself is just thinking i need to survive i need to get out of this no matter however however i can and i just love that scene in the tunnel because it's such a small moment but it kind of it talks a lot about how people change and how we all have our own perceptions about people over time like you you see someone four years later and you expect them to be who you who they were four years before I know, isn't it? Isn't it interesting how we form and change and grow, and little things can knock us off our course that we thought we were going to be on for our entire lives. It's it's fascinating. It's a human story, and and Romain Serrer and Catherine wrote a script that's beautiful, a beautiful study of the human condition as well, which is something I'm in love with. I, I, I think it's we're a beautiful, frustrating, awkward, hypocritical, fascinating uh, species, and and I, I love deal with that you know that the, you know the most important thing for me is that you know some of the characters motivation is greed the gis for the most part two of the gis not all of them by the way not all four the other two it's more complex but for two of them this is simply about being able to make a better life for themselves when they return they fit they're older they they're, they're older gis they were hired uh, late in the war they don't have the idealism that young men have they're cynical they're tired and they want to be paid for all of this hard work that they've done and they feel they're owed it. They feel they're entitled to something from this hideous experience they've been through and they validate that. It's not really greed in the in the form of, ah, I'm going to get some money and I'm going to retire yeah. on a desert island. They just feel they want their due, you know? And then you have the German and frankly, von Bruckner is in love. You know, he's he's he just wants to retire with, with the beautiful blonde with as much money as he can somewhere somewhere nice. It's not about greed for him either. Nina uh, uh, Marie's motivation is 100% 
not about greed. And we realized in the final act, and by the way, we don't know, we don't know in the first third. And that was what attracted me to the script. I had no idea who to root for in the first third of the movie. And then, I was rooting for her regardless. I'm like, this is a oh, woman surrounded by men. I'm going to root for her. <laughs> and then it galvanizes and we realize who it is that we're behind. And for me, that moment is really important in films uh, where you are you are suddenly aware of who it is you're rooting for and you, you didn't realize it. And I've had a lot of people tell me that right up to the second half of the movie, they were rooting for the German and they felt that what the hell's going on? What's going on? You know, this, he's, a, he's just, you know, but he plays that role so well. And, and I told Daniel, I don't want you to play it as a bad guy. Do not play this as a bad guy. Do not play him uh, as, as evil. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He, he has justified everything that he's done in his career from executing innocent people to stealing gold that's made of the feelings of, of, of Jewish camp victims. You know, he has justified that in his mind. If you see, if you watch footage of interviews from, uh, from, from the uh, war crimes tribunals of these people, they don't think they're criminals. They never do. Yeah, and I, there's, a, there's a documentary that I watched a couple years ago. It was, I think it's 2018, Tiff. I'm about this. I'm about the forming of the um of the war crimes of the war crimes tribunal when when they first started to try the Nazi, um, um as war criminals and like when they, and when you watch these interviews like they're so chilling because these men describe extremely horrific event, things that they did but they 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 rationalize every single moment that of of every single action like to themselves like they rationalize it they're like and they, and they can't understand in their minds they they they've so invested themselves and their identities into what into what they were doing like they could not understand the idea of what they were doing as as abhorrent as this as you know as like as extremely heinous ass and it was kind of chilling to watch it happen and and they were and then he was focused around the lawyer he was one of the first lawyers to try the um these nazi generals and the soldiers and he like when he talked about how like like being in a courtroom with these men and just being chilled to the bone hearing these men talk about these things and like you can like talking about like someone like like the character in the film like he is he would be the same way like if you put him on the trial he's not gonna see it as anything he's doing because he's like uh when when Goering went to trial at nuremberg he was the head of the you know it originated the gestapo head of the Luftwaffe at the time he was convinced the allies were going to hire him they were going to put him in a position of power because he was so helpful because well, he of everything. Was necessarily wrong, was he? Yeah, he had no idea. He was absolutely confused when all of this vitriol came. You know, they started showing black and white footage of, of you know, the opening of Dachauzen and, and Auschwitz. He was confused by this. He didn't understand because he thought they were going to appreciate his help. It's absolutely mind-boggling. It's baffling to us now. But what I wanted Daniel to do was to take that frame of mind, to run with that, to play him as the hero of the movie. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, he sees himself as a hero. Oh, yeah. he thinks he's rescuing Marie. He absolutely does. He's confused at the end. He's, he, he says, oh, you've done it. You've shot him. You've done it so we can be together. And he's he, he clueless to the fact she's about to, you know, take it out on him too. But, but for me, those complexities are what make a movie interesting when you see a cliche and we've seen that character before and we sort of know the direction it's a copy of tarantino who i'm whom i love or a copy of another film or a copy this is boring to me you know those films are fantastic when they were original the, the characters in this for me sang out from the script because they felt so authentic and human and real uh you know the the, the two you know lewis and and tim the two older gis 
they, they get a chance to give a little bit of their backstory, which I adore. Uh, both of their scenes, they play them so well and they validate everything they're doing. They validate where they are. They validate why they have done such awful things. They validate why they're beating her, why they have a gun on this poor innocent woman who has nothing but a silk you know, uh, underdress to protect her. And they validate themselves. And this is what real criminals do. You know, you, you, you will maybe see a bank robber. You know, I, I've, I've worked in a lot of prisons on movies and I've talked to a lot of, of inmates and one or two of them will say, yeah, you know, I'm just a bad guy. I can't help myself. But not many, not many will say that. Most mm-hmm. of them, you know, I got framed or it was a screw up or, you know, I was doing great. I never hurt anyone. And, and, and that's the truth. They validate it. They, they are able to sleep at night. If you or I committed a crime, we wouldn't sleep for three. We wouldn't sleep. It would be like. No, I'm like, listen, I saw when I used to get in trouble, my mom, I would sell myself out first before anybody could turn. I, I would go into my mom like, listen, I did this. I, I, I would confess before my sister. I wanted my friends to tell my mom because I'm like, let me sell out myself first before anybody else could do it. <laughs> awful it would be like the you know the uh the edgar Allan poe that you know with the ticking heart you know we yeah, we, yeah. we would you know we give ourselves up and we give all the info just for just to have a, a good night's sleep again but these you know uh real psychopaths don't have that problem real sociopaths they don't they they are content they sleep better than us at night you know it's it's not a problem for them and and, and these guys have gone so through so much at this point in their lives so much self uh, you know, sort of rationalization that that's where we meet them. And I, I find, I find those kind of studies extraordinarily interesting, you know, and if you can get your characters right, and if you can make your characters believable and organic as a director, because ultimately my job is sitting by the camera and listening to the, and watching. And if it feels organic and it feels real, the audience will get it and they'll follow these characters on their path to find out what happens. The moment it sounds like someone's learning lines and reciting lines I'm lost and the film is lost and it's gone. So I knew that what I needed on this was authentic performances. And I think the cast do a wonderful job. I really, really hope people go see this and, 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 and enjoy these performances because these guys really gave it everything. They invested their whole, you know, there was, I don't think a day went by on this set where someone wasn't scratched or bruised or burned, not, not because it was an unsafe set, but because the cast was simply throwing themselves, committing themselves to these roles as much as they could, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Like, um, like when you're like talking about how, um, like soldiers, um, kind of and, and people and like, like the Nazis and people who were who did these kind of like horrific acts, like kind of like made me think of um, there was this show in the mid '90s called Tour Judy, and to me, it was one of the most realistic um shows about the Vietnamese about the war in Vietnam because it like a lot of it was from the perspective of these of these soldiers, and it was also one of the few um shows I know I think it was the only show at that time about Vietnam and it was one and apart from um what was that old show um the one that was in the 50s MASH right so I think apart from MASH is the it was the only one that had like a very diverse cast because this this show had like Mexicans it had like black men it had white men it had Asian men as part of like the infantry in um in Vietnam and it, like hearing you talk about that because I remember a lot of the dialogue in that show was talking about how war makes monsters out of men, and like when when like for soldiers like um like um like Maitland and those and those played by um Christopher like is like they they're rationalizing themselves like they they've become so detached 
for some of them, like war brings out the worst of them. Like this, they were always monsters on the inside, and war gives them an opportunity to become the monsters that they had the potential to be. And then for war, it it makes it turns them into monsters, something that they would have never been before war. But there's this character played by um Joseph Cannon, Vic. And I have to ask you about it because I was like, it's the one black man and he dies first. But before he dies, but before he dies, like, he talks about how he observes these men do ex these extremely horrific things. He's like, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, they sign up for war. But then the things that these men do in the name of the war and as an excuse for the war, like he like that's that I think that was a very I think that was a very good scene because he talks about this isn't who I am. This isn't what I came here to do. He's like, I've done bad things for myself, but these things that I'm seeing these men do, like this is not what I, I ever, ever expected to do. And I thought it was interesting, especially coming from a black man, because I'm like, you would have been facing racism and anti-blackness back home in America, but it's seen, I guess it's seen how, 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 what's the word, what's the term I'm looking for? How these men could be as dangerous to, uh, to white women and to white men on another, on, on another territory. So I really like that scene. And then he got that he died, but I was like, you know what? I kind of prefer that he died first because I would prefer that and seeing him do the extremely horrific things that the others went out to do afterwards. Oh, he, he was the most sympathetic of the GIs for sure. Uh, it, he was originally written as a white guy. Uh, I've worked with Joseph Cannon three times. He's one of the most poetic, and interesting and wonderful actors I, I've worked with. He's a big man. He's a big, intimidating man as a physical specimen, but he has this most poetic and beautiful, gentle way of delivering lines. And, and I love that juxtaposition and, and, and white, black or whatever. I, I don't really see the colors. It doesn't, that, that's not how I make movies. It's, I'm, I, you know, I'm an observer and a voyeur of love and a studier of the human condition. It's, it, it, it's not... I don't want to get into politics. No, or, no, I understand what you mean. Uh, uh, I knew I wanted him in the movie somehow. So I wrote this part and I changed it to being uh, a black soldier with him. There's a lot of research you have to go to because they, they weren't simply fighting alongside uh, uh, white units at the time. It was a little more complicated than that, that racism was, it was endemic. It was a, uh, it was, but as a translator, he would have been in there. And I'm saying that he learned French because of something he knew back in his, in his youth. Uh, and I wrote the dialogue for him. And then Catherine rewrote the dialogue. And Joseph came in prior to shooting. He said, I love you, Jess, but this dialogue is awful. <laughs> uh, I said, please do it, do it, do it. And he rewrote it. And pretty much 99.9% .9 of what Joseph's canons uh, character says in the movie is Joseph's uh, 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 poetry. That's what he wrote. And I loved it. We, we had to move. The only thing we had to change was we could only get the rights to one of the uh, songs that he mentioned. We had to make sure that that was public domain. So he had chosen a different song. We found another one from 1939, a Louis Armstrong one that was, you know, that we could use. But other than that, that's, that's Joseph and his poetry. He's a writer. He's a beautiful human being. He's a creative soul, an old soul, uh, the kind of people I'm drawn to. They, they, I don't I get cosmic awareness and talking about past lives, but I think people bring a certain history to their performances. And you can tell when someone hasn't lived too much and they're faking it. And then you can tell when someone has a genuine richness to their character, they've lived life, whether in this life or past life or whatever, but they bring a depth and a quality to their performance that makes your hair stand on end 
makes their dialogue sound a little bit more profound than the average person. And I love, I love working with Joseph and he does that. I've taken him to Georgia. He worked with me on the Bruce Willis film. He worked with me on Debt Collectors Part 2 and made that character far deeper and richer and more interesting. There's a scene in Debt Collector 2 where he tells Scott Adkins, I've been your fan for life, man. Uh, I loved you. What happened? You know, what the hell happened to you? And, and this was written in the script. It was okay. But the way that Joseph played it, you know, it's one of those scenes where I'm watching the monitor and I'm wanting to know what happens next. And I forget to say, I'm like, I'm leaning in and the director has to tap me on the shoulder and say, dude, say cut. <laughs> no, 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 I want to see. And those moments are magical for me. I'm ter- terrible in that respect. I get caught up in these scenes all the time. Going, right. I don't want to say cut. I'm ruining it. I don't want to step away from the canvas, you know. Uh, and Joseph brings those moments. Lewis brings those moments. Uh, Timothy B. Murphy brings those moments. And most of all, Nina did it on this one. I, would, if, if, I guarantee you, if I just kept the camera rolling, Nina would have stayed in character and we'd have seen a different movie end. You know, it would have just kept going because she was so primed for the scene. There was never that moment where they finished their dialogue and look over the director for approval. That doesn't, that doesn't happen with these kind of actors. They're in the moment. They're unaware of the camera, or at least they're making me feel they're unaware of the camera. I'm sure they're aware of it, making sure the face is... T- but, but it's a, uh, such an wonderfully organic and rewarding experience when you work with actors like that and so yes i'm so pleased you enjoyed joseph's performance uh the only credit i can take for it is putting him in there <laughs> no, I, I, I really like that scene because it kind of speaks to how um where somewhere people from of different backgrounds if you meet if you meet up you can have some kind of common ground and like for in this scene like he what the common ground is music like the love of jazz music and the appreciation appreciation of jazz music so i like when you have those kind of it's kind of like a down a down kind of like no i don't want to say downtime that's the wrong phrase um um it's, it's kind of like the in-between moment before everything starts to go to hell but like, you just have that moment where the characters and I, I guess you could say also the actors they have a chance to breathe right and you, they have a chance to be like this is one moment of normalcy amidst all of the chaos that's raining down around them uh, uh, one of my favorite directors william wyler uh said that you have to almost bore the audience before you can shock them uh this is obviously a, a, a gross sort of oversimplification but the, the pause moments where you lull the audience into a sense of uh, 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 sort of unawareness and allow you these these beats where you can shock them. You know, if you're just shock after shock, if you uh, this modern term roller coaster of a movie, if you're simply you know just throwing more and more uh, pyrotechnics or scares or action or loud special effects at an audience, you 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 numb them. Then they're no longer they're no longer uh, uh, impressionable or sensitive to what you're going to you, I think it's very very important to have these beautiful down moments where you're allowed to invest in the characters where you start to learn about these people as human beings and then the moment the violence starts my god it's a visceral thing you're, you're involved as the audience member now your, your emotions are being are being tested and, and, and that for me is a very important part of directing and storytelling you know uh, it's the down it's the quiet moment before the storm you know uh, yeah, it, uh, I, I think originally Joseph's part was written as a, uh, he was the one sensitive member of the, of the team. He was the one voice of reason, the one sympathetic one. And the moment he's killed from that point, everything falls into disarray. I don't, uh, and as I say, it's, it is sort of uh, unfortunate that it, it follows the cliche of the, the, you know, the horror movie where the first victim. <laughs> oh my God. 
African American or a black person, but it's it's you know it was certainly not uh, intended that way. And I think the way we played it is is individual enough that it, it, it transcends that. But but yes, no, it does. No, I just thought it would. No, I just made the comparison because in, like you said, it, it, it it's a trope in horror movies, but it's a trope in the fact that like, like you don't think these characters. Um, and especially in horror movies, the way all that happened is just like, where are these people like doing these things? You're like, as a black person, you'd be like, you'll be heading, you'll be heading out of town. Like, don't be hanging around. Yeah, but I think it's different in your film. Uh, I, I love the way he played it. And hopefully it will transcend, you know, any any of those sort of comparisons. Uh, you know, uh, I enjoy working with him. And I think it's it's a beautiful character that he's created. And he did create it. As I say, he wrote he wrote that dialogue and it's beautiful. And I, I, when I saw it, I loved it. And it's like, yes, as, as it's written. He's like, you sure? And I said, absolutely, as it's written, let's do it. I, I, I like that. I, like, I, I often will have work with actors who bring their own uh, take to a character. They'll, they'll change things. So there's, there's, you know, uh, Ski Carr, who I've worked with twice now as well, will do that. And, and, and I, I remember we had the conversation with him. I first met him on Deck Collectors. I said, look, I'm not going to try and write dialogue the way it's spoken in South Central. I don't want to do that. That's not my job. I don't want, I don't want it. I don't, it would be pastiche. It would be me mimicking it. I want you to write it. And he wrote it. It was some of the most authentic dialogue that I've ever had the pleasure of taking credit for. <laughs> and it's, 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 and it's important. I would do the same thing if I had a Vietnamese character. I'd talk to them and I'd have them write the characters it should be. I don't see a problem with this. My favourite scripts, ah, it's not true to say my favourite scripts are written by committee, but a lot of them had a lot of writers on board. I think it's my job as a filmmaker and a storyteller to get that script as strong, as powerful, as taut as a snare drum. As, as, as is humanly possible before I commit to making it. And if that means bringing on another writer or another's perspective or another point of view or an expert in military matters or to, to write the dialogue for the soldiers, Carolyn, I'm going to do it because for me, that's my, that's my Lord, you know, that's my God, the script. Yeah, no, and, and speaking about that, like one of the things that I think is interesting about this film, I think compared to yours, is it's it's an action film for sure. It's like guns and knives and explosions and all this. But because the central character, I think, is Marie, and like and it's not that you haven't had female characters, that like you've had like female characters who are badass and who kick ass, but because of but because of Marie's situation, she is not a martial artist. She's like even and, and even though Nina has like training as an amateur boxer, she like she's not physically she's not physical that way. She's not a, she doesn't use her body as her physical defense. So I want to ask you like, what was it like creating a film around a, a character, a female character who doesn't who is not a martial artist? Because like that's what a lot of your films are known for. You, like you mentioned, like you have Scott Atkins who's well known in the action film genre for being a martial artist and you have other films that you have like Tony Ja and you've worked with people like Iko Yus and like that like, we have like you, your films are known for having martial artists but like your film is this film is not that and your your female character is not a female martial artist so like I, I thought it was interesting that she's able to defeat these men without with very few with very little violence from her own self so I want to ask you about filming a film like this with a character like that uh, very, very quickly to touch again, there's a few few things you've touched on there. Th first thing, I've been extraordinarily lucky as a director to work with Scott Atkins, Tony Jaa, Iko Uwes. Uh, these are human beings who are like walking special effects. My job as a director is to keep out of their way, to bring the camera back, to show this incredible talent, this incredible gift that they have, and to do that. And the, and the challenge was always with those scripts to come up with a realistic reason for two human beings to enter into a physical combat 
as we mentioned earlier, I, I would talk my way out of anything rather than actually have to hit another person or be hit by another person. I did that as a young man. I, I got hit many times. I was an amateur fighter as well. And, and it's not a pleasant thing. I don't like being hit in the face. Uh, you know, it's so how do we formulate a story where people fight in of a, in, in, in Hell Hath No Fury, my reasoning was the opposite. We had to come up with ways that she could beat these powerful men by not engaging physically with them. How can she outwit them, outsmart them, outmaneuver, outmanipulate them? And for me, this was the challenge and the exciting part of it. We must always challenge ourselves as artists. We must always go where our fear is. We must go where our lack of uh, confidence is because that's what makes us grow and that's what's exciting and that's what makes every day on set or in the writing room or in the edit room exciting and and rewarding and powerful if we continuously make films that we know and we understand we don't take any risks whatsoever with our with ourselves or our work uh, the work's going to suffer you're not going to enjoy it you'll become bored of it uh and to be frank when you're bored of making something the audience is generally bored of it as well so it was it extraordinarily exciting for me to go somewhere where I hadn't been before, you know, to take this lead character and, and make no bones about it. It's an ensemble, but if Marie wasn't convincing, if her way of taking on these people was not convincing, it would ruin the movie and the movie's gone. So everything relied upon the audience understanding and believing and fully uh, <coughs> uh, rooting for her way of taking these guys on. At no point does she, does she, you know, do it the traditional way, you know, that we've done in another movie. And that was exciting to me, Carolyn. That was really something that was uh, the challenge, you know, and, and that's fun. And you try to go where, where you have excitement. But yeah, so it was, it was, it was wonderful, but it's all there in the script. I, I'd like to take credit for, you know, a lot of it, but it really was as, as written, you know, always one step ahead, always keeping people on their heel, uh, not quite sure, including the audience, not quite sure who we're, behind who's the good guys who are the bad guys why is she doing this why are they doing this what's the motivation why do they appear like bad guys why does she seem to be the bad you know the, the, the one that's at fault and then slowly learning learning at almost at the speed of the, of the the supporting cast we learn who the real good guy is and it's not till the very end that we realize this has all been a part of a uh, of a of a plan to protect you know the gold from being used by people who are motivated yeah it was about protect i think it was about pr the protecting the goal but i think it was also for me i kind of read it as her protecting her family legacy and doing what she could to, pr to protect like all of the people who had been murdered and killed and protecting their memory because this is the last bit of them right this is the, this is all that's left to these people and so i saw it as her she was like like these people have been exploited and murdered and like they need to lay, they need there they there needs to be a way for to lay their memories to rest, and I kind of saw it as that, and like it was, as as you mentioned, it was not about the green, and I love that that's revealed right at the end of the film because you think that oh she's trying to get the the goal for herself, and you know and that you and then you realize it's not it's it's literally not about the goal, it's about the, what the goal symbolizes. It's it's a fascinating thing, we, you know. As young people, we think of diamonds and gold, and we we love all of this, and and oh, it means riches, you know. It means a diamond encrusted Rolex, and how much that would be nice to have that and show that off. If as adults we do a little research, we learn the real 
origin of diamonds, the pain, the blood, the, the colonialism, the slaughter, the genocide in many terms that went into those diamond mines in Africa, and, and, and you know, the De Beers family, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, no one is, is not guilty. You pay $20,000 for that diamond ring, think very carefully about the origins of that diamond, you know, and, and do a little bit of research, have a think about it. Uh, there are places in the world you can take gold in, and you need no form of, of uh, receipt or provenance on that gold. You will get the value of that gold at face value and you walk away with cash. Gold is an interesting thing too. You know, in this case, the gold that is stamped with the Waffen Eagle, the, 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 the German marking, has come from the teeth of, 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 of Jewish camp victims, of menorah melted down, of jewelry melted down. And, this, and, and it's more than gold. It's when there's gold, more than gold. And in this case, that gold represents, not only represents, but is the physical manifestation of, 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 a, of a whole group of people being, being slaughtered. And, 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 and that, that is everything that is remaining of these people. Uh, and it's no longer just gold. It's no longer worth its weight in gold. It is something else entirely different. And, and this is an important thing to think about for, for, for us in the modern era where everything is just based upon, you know, wow, how, how can I look richer than I actually am, you know, with my, with my cell phone and take a photo of myself? How can I look better looking? How can I look like I'm a success overnight? How can I fashion? You know, we, we live in a very, very uh, guilt-free uh, time where, where simply being able to show something in the moment is, is, you know, is perceived as how you're going to be judged. It's incorrect, of course. And as we get older, we know it's all, it's all this farcical and as, as, transitory as, as you know someone telling a you know an, a, a, a video opinion on on a on a blog you know but but it is but it is an indicator i think that this one woman who is marie understands there's more to it and there's so much more to it and hopefully by the end of the film the audience understands that too and they take a little bit of that away and we realize it was not about walking away a millionaire it was about walking away with a clean conscience yeah and feeling that you had protected something, the memory of these people, if nothing else, and that no, all the money in the world isn't going to make it good if you take that and you, 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 and you benefit and, you, and you, you, know, you profit from that. Uh, she profited immeasurably. You know, she never went back to the place again. She had a family. She grew up. She lived a quiet life. She was in love. She had children that loved her, and she passed away. And, and, and this is the most wonderful gift that any of us have beyond beyond getting rich and i think that's important you know we make a lot of movies there's a lot of movies about getting rich quick about stealing money and getting away with it and living on a desert island this is but I, I i find it's nice to go another way once in a while and, and there's a there's a spiritual richness that's far more valuable and far more important really in the long run i know a lot of people who got rich quick they lose their money quickly and they are very very unhappy very true like, what, one thing i would love for someone to nevertheless want to make a, a film about a cat burglar who steals from museums and returns the, the, the stolen and returns the stolen and provenance and jewelry and artifacts back to the original homes. Like someone who wants to make a, a film about someone stealing the, the, um, the crown jewels and returning them back to Africa. That would be amazing. Go and steal some Chinese artifacts and return them back to China. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, of, of course, of course, there's, there's far more to every, every, you know, all of this jewelry and things than we think, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting time, you know, uh, you know, we're learning about the back origins and there's a, there's a far richer conversation there, Carolyn, you're absolutely right. But in this case, it's, it's a little more obvious, you know, these, these bars of gold that 
have meant so much in the minds of these GIs, the resistance, the German, really represent pure evil on 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 Earth, and it really was evil. Uh, uh, I I did a lot of research for this, and I forced I forced that's what I asked the cast and crew to watch, you know, uh, come and see a picture that was made uh, uh, by a, a Belarus director about his childhood at the end of the Second World War, and watching, you know, the uh, the the the, the scorch earth uh, process that the SS, particularly one group of SS, used to go through his his home country and how devastating that was. It's a very, very affecting movie. Uh, extraordinary. It's almost, you have nightmares from it. It's almost like actually participating in this in some in some manner. Uh, and I asked everyone to watch it and, 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 and they had a little flavour of what was going on. This isn't a war film you know, that ends with a lot of people laughing and hugging each other and, you know, and, 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 and as they did, this, this is, it, it is a testament to the fact that there are no winners in a situation like this, you know. Uh, even Marie's character, I'm sure she carried the emotional burden of what went on for the rest of her life, but, but at least she, she knew she had done what, in her mind, was justified, you know, yeah. and, made, and made sense. Uh, so... It's a complicated thing, isn't it? But but I hope people enjoy my take on it. I hope they're not disappointed that, that, that they didn't just go off and live on a desert island with the money. <laughs> hey, I, I enjoyed it. I really liked it. As a, and as a, the, the part of the Thailand is how hot and fury, and then you can't go on with it like a woman scorned. But she was not scorned. She was just filled with righteous anger. <laughs> that was me getting a bit philosophical there, but just, um, but thank you so much for talking with me, Jesse. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about the film and the cast I think was great. And I love how you structured the film. As I said, like, I just love how contained it is. Partly that was due to COVID, like props to you and your team and every and the crew and the production crew and everyone being able to film in, um, in situations because I know filming has, I've talked to a few directors who have made films during the pandemic and I know it is not easy um it like so I appreciate all of the work that you and your crew do and and everyone was safe and made such a great film and I appreciate you again taking the time to talk with me about it so much Carolyn really really appreciate it great questions and and please feel free to if you're ever near where I'm filming to come by for a set visit and and enjoy it these are adventures they're fun to make and I love the process of making movies sure for sure I'm in Toronto so I don't know if I don't whenever this pandemic ends I will be happy to do a set visit especially if you're doing action film because I love action films so for sure <laughs> wonderful so everyone that was another episode of Caroline Talk and this episode I spoke to director Jesse V. Johnson about his latest um, historical action, How Half No Fury, which will be distributed by Wago USA. And it will be distributed in theaters and in VOD, so you can visit the Wago USA site to see where you, where you can stream as well as purchase the film. And I appreciate and I appreciate Jesse taking the time to talk to me. This was a great conversation. And everyone, you, you can check out more episodes of Carolyn Talk on the buttbythepodcast.com site, as well as my YouTube channel under my name, Carolyn Heinz, that's H-I-N-D-S. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at CarrieCNH12. You can use follow my hashtags, Dramas with Carrie, where I like tweet my current Asian drama watches and Saturday night sci-fi. That is every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. I am my co-host and our peeps. I call them my Saturday night sci-fi peeps. We live tweet um, our chosen um, film or TV show of the week of the week. And we have a blast doing it. It's so much fun. And again, every, until the next episode of Caroline Talks, everyone stay safe. Ooh, ooh, ooh.